Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author, serial entrepreneur, nonprofit CEO, and political leader. In 2018, after serving for 11 years in the Georgia House of Representatives, seven as Democratic leader, Stacey Abrams became the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia, winning more votes than any other Democrat in the state's history. Leader Abrams was the first black woman to become the gubernatorial nominee for a major party in the United States, and she was the first black woman and first Georgian to deliver the response to the State of the Union. After witnessing the handling of the 2018 election by the Georgia Secretary of State's office, Leader Abrams launched Fair Fight to ensure every American has a voice in our election system. Over the course of her career, Leader Abrams has founded multiple organizations devoted to voting rights, training and hiring young people of color, and tackling social issues at both the state and national levels. Stacey Abrams is a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations, where she serves on the Subcommittee on Diversity. Leader Abrams, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about politics, I want to talk about you for a moment. You are the second of six children. You were born in Madison, Wisconsin, and raised in Gulfport, Mississippi, and in Georgia. And both of your parents are Methodist ministers. So I wanted to get you to talk about growing up as a black woman in the South in the 1970s and 80s and how that origin story informs your work today. Thank you. So my parents, were at the time I was growing up, they were, uh, my mom's a librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker. My mother received her master's degree in library science from the university of Wisconsin, which is why I was born in the North. But my family, my parents were both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We were working poor. My mom was an accomplished librarian. She became the head of the college library. However, at moments in her career, she made less money than the janitor who cleaned the college. My dad was a shipyard worker who, despite having a college education, because he had a learning disability, was presumed not capable of being in an office and having one of those jobs, uh, but was an extraordinarily hard worker who did everything along with my mom to take care of us. But we were still working poor. But my parents wanted us to understand that our economic situation did not dictate our futures. They told us we have three jobs, go to church, go to school, and take care of each other. (laughs) Go to church because they wanted us to believe in something larger than ourselves. Go to school because they knew education had basically been their way out. Uh, For both of my parents, they were first-generation college. And the third was service, that it's not enough to do for yourself and your family. Your responsibility is to help others. Uh, My mom's way of putting it was, no matter how little we have, there's someone with less your job is to serve that person. And that's how I grew up, and I apparently was not able to forget it. It sounds like it it started early and with your folks, but when did you think you might want to pursue a career in public service? My mom and dad would take us out to volunteer almost weekly when we were growing up. And while I 
appreciated what we did. I was always bemused by the idea that these two extraordinary people and their six kids could fix the poverty of Mississippi. And so I would ask my parents, shouldn't someone else be doing this too? Shouldn't there be a macro system that can solve this problem? And they said, that's called government. And I became fascinated with understanding why the public sector didn't work the way it could, that it just seemed to me that poverty was inefficient. It was immoral and it squandered human capital. So in high school, I became very aware of politics and in college started working more as a volunteer and activist. But having gotten into a fight with the mayor of Atlanta when I was a freshman in college, I ended up getting a job working in his office as a sophomore. And that really turned my attention towards the idea of running for office one day myself. So you first came to national attention during your 2008 run for the governor of Georgia and in 2019 when you delivered the Democratic response to the State of the Union address. But you were a 25-year overnight success story. You've been a fixture of Georgia (laughs) politics for more than a decade. Has anything surprised you about life on the national political stage? I I think it's exactly what you articulated. I am a 25-year overnight success. So, you know, I worked for the, I did federal internships because I wanted to understand how the federal government works. So I worked in OMB and I worked for the EPA twice. I had been very intentional about building my private sector understanding. I was a very successful democratic leader, helping guide a chamber that faced being put into super minority status, meaning the Republicans would hold two thirds majority. And for seven years, I blocked that from happening. One of the few Southern chambers to never go into super minority status, even though the Georgia State Senate did. I worked to build infrastructure and to not only be successful in my political work, but to build the capacity for the principles I held to be true for the party I support to be able to do its work. And we were successful, so successful that in 2018, even though I didn't become governor, we flipped 16 legislative seats. We took the ancestral seat of Newt Gingrich and Lucy McBath, a gun safety activist, now holds that seat. What is surprising to me is how, not how much work it takes to get where we need to be, but how persistent we have to be to make sure people know what's happening. The challenge, particularly in the South, is that we are so often written off as a lost cause for Democrats, that much of the work that I and others have been doing for decades has been lost on a national conversation. And yet we are the fastest growing part of the country across the Sun Belt. We are the vanguard of the next generation of leadership. And I'm, I'm always a bit taken aback at how little people pay attention to what's happening here. Leader Abrams, it's Joe Lockhart. Again, thanks for joining us. Can I turn your attention to what I think is taking a lot of your time now, uh, the problem of voter suppression, not just in Georgia, but around the country? Unless you're a political pro, you hear voter suppression, you probably think it's bad, but I think most of our listeners don't really know what it is. Can you sort of lay out from your perspective the problem and how we got to where we are today? Voter suppression is any interference with the ability of an eligible voter to cast a vote. And that begins with, can that voter register and can they stay on the roll? So are they purged? Are they 
erased from the database. Second is, can they access a ballot? That means, can they get an absentee ballot if they requested? Do they have a polling place that's nearby? Are they given opportunities to early vote if that's supposed to be available in their community? And then the third is, can your ballot be counted? When you cast your ballot, does it get rejected as an absentee ballot? Are you given a provisional ballot because of a mistake made and your provisional ballot is thrown out? Do you have a system, an electronic system, that doesn't actually record your vote? Do you have to stand in line for four hours and because you have to get out of line, your vote does not count because you simply can't afford the poll tax that is standing in line? And so it's, can you register and stay on the rolls? Can your can you cast a ballot and can your ballot be counted? That looks different in every state, but that architecture is true across all 50 states. The other part of the challenge is that between 1965 and 2013, the states that were the most egregious about blocking access to the right to vote were held in a state of uh, abasance. They had to do the right thing because of the Voting Rights Act. But in 2013, the Shelby versus Holder decision was set by the Supreme Court, right. and it essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act. And in the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, what the Chief Justice said was that racism is dead, discrimination isn't happening, go about your business and do what you want. And almost immediately, states that were once governed by the Voting Rights Act or states that had seen demographic changes started implementing almost every one of the measures that I described. They started purging voters, made it harder for people to register, made it impossible to use the identification that people had used for decades. They made stricter ID laws that aren't the issue of can you go and you know, get your uh, prescription filled. It is, do you have an original copy of your birth certificate from a state that would not let you be born in a hospital during segregation? That's the kind of issue that we have. And so what I want folks to understand is that Unlike the 1960s, where voter suppression was billy clubs and hoses, today it's administrative errors. It's rules and bureaucratic mazes that convince voters that it's either not worth the effort or it's just impossible to defeat it. And it has both the physical effect of blocking you from voting, but has the psychic effect of convincing you it's not worth trying. I recall that opinion from the Supreme Court uh, gutting Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And if I recall correctly, I believe that was a famous line in the dissent from Justice Ginsburg, who said, getting rid of those protections is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you about your work with that piece, the the litigation piece, because as I understand it with Fair Fight, it's kind of a two-pronged attack or approach, both through litigation and legislation that's focusing on those three areas, the the registration before the vote, the access to the ballots when you vote, and then the the counting of the vote and making sure that that's effective and proper. There was a, a case, I believe, that was filed as a part of your work, and I wanted to ask you how that was going and the status of that. So we filed a massive litigation. We are currently in discovery. We hope to be through the discovery process by the end of the spring and We will get an order from the court at that point uh, setting a trial date, but we are in the midst of it. And we've had experts who have validated what we had seen and the information that we aggregated from voters across the state. We've had experts say that 
you know, we only saw the tip of the iceberg in some ways. And the, the reality is, while we're fighting this lawsuit here in Georgia, this is happening across the country. Uh, Mark Elias, uh, through Perkins Coie, just filed a lawsuit in Texas. The closure of 514 precincts, I think, it's, I think that's the number, so roughly 500 precincts in Texas, blocked people from being able to cast their votes in a Democratic primary. And one thing we have to understand is that voter suppression doesn't simply exist when it's a general election. It happens year-round. We just tend not to notice. And if we do not fix the system at the source, and if we do not tackle it at every election, then it becomes so pernicious that it's almost impossible to disconnect it from how our democracy works. And worse, it makes us think it's user error that we've made a mistake as opposed to the fact that we should be able to expect better from a system that undergirds our entire process of government. So um, I happen to have someone over at my house who's from Austin, Texas on Super Tuesday, and she was telling me that her husband had gone and voted and they live in a middle or upper middle class neighborhood. And he said he walked in and walked out. There was hardly anybody there. And on TV, I saw a gentleman who waited seven hours in line. So this isn't an administrative issue. It's a Republican strategy to suppress the vote and not the vote. They're not colorblind here, too. They want to suppress black votes in particular. I understand the legislation and the uh, litigation, but what about activation? What can you do to rally the troops on this? Sure. So we've done two things. Uh, Fair fight action is a C4, and we do use a triple strategy of litigation, legislation, and advocacy. We have Fair Fight U, which is our college-based program in 14 colleges. We have the Democracy Warriors. These are super volunteers who we deploy to state elections boards meetings and to county board meetings so they understand when polling places are being shut down. They know how to fight back about the budget. Uh, We have our Democracy Protection Work, which is our national evaluation of how voter suppression exists in every state. And then separate, we have Fair Fight 2020, which is part of our Fair Fight PAC work. And that's actually embedded in the Democratic Party state parties across the country, because we agree this is a Republican strategy because they have two options with the changing demography of America. They can either adjust their messaging and their politics, or they can block people from being heard. So they have decided it is a better solution to dismantle democracy than simply adapt to the changing world we live in. Our response is that we have helped create in 18 states Voter protection teams, teams that are working now to understand what suppression looks like in each state and then to work in concert with those state parties and with good actors in that state to do the work. So if folks want to be a part of this, they go to fairfight2020.com. They can sign up with us and we can leverage them and engage them. Uh, One of the examples is that here in Georgia in December, they attempted to purge 309,000 Georgians. We got a group of folks together, including some of the presidential candidates. And, and people from around the country who called more than 100,000 Georgians, many of whom possibly had moved, but thousands of whom should not have been taken off the rolls. We got 4,500 people to flag and get back on the rolls. And we were also able to force the Secretary of State to admit that he had illegally attempted to purge 22,000 people. Across the country, there are going to be moments like that, needing folks to show up to protest the closure of a polling place, which is part of what happened in Texas or helping folks get IDs because voter ID laws are designed 
and, and let's be clear, these are restrictive voter ID laws. We've always had voter ID, but these are more restrictive and we need help making sure people have access to the right ID. There's going to be a moment where we ask you to volunteer as a poll watcher or a poll worker. We need people inside and around those precincts helping flag what's going wrong because we know the Republican Party, the RNC, for the first time in 35 years will have the legal authority to spend hard and soft dollars essentially intimidating voters. A consent decree they've been under since 1981 was lifted in 2017. And for the first time since that time, they can engage in what they call ballot security. And what that means is voter intimidation directly targeted at communities of color. Yeah, I remember the the first congressional campaign I did was in Southside, Virginia, and it was 1982. So they were under the consent uh, agreement and there were armed off-duty cops at all in all the black precincts uh, with signs that mm-hmm. said, call this number if you see voter fraud. So I called the number and it was the RNC. And that's, it hasn't changed. I think it's gotten more sophisticated. One of the more insidious uh, initiatives from the Republicans is the misinformation that they're putting out there on the census. What can we do to combat that? And why is it so important? In addition to launching Fair Fight after the 2018 election, I launched Fair Count. We know that the census has two key responsibilities in our lives. One is the allocation of $1.5 trillion every single year for almost every federally funded social program, whether we're talking about SNAP benefits or hospital investment, Medicare and Medicaid, transportation, small business investment. You think of it, it's funded by the census. The communities that are not counted in the census do not receive their dollars. And because a number of those programs are designed to specifically respond to the needs of communities of color, if communities of color are undercounted, those dollars don't just disappear. They get reallocated to other communities. The other piece is that reapportionment, the allocation of congressional leadership across the country, as well as redistricting, the drawing of lines for political districts, happens based on the 2020 census. If people are not counted, they will not count. And because of the Supreme Court in 2019 authorized partisan gerrymandering as legitimate action, the only federally prohibited form of gerrymandering is racial gerrymandering. They can't pack or otherwise obscure the ability of communities of color to work together to elect their chosen leaders. But if they don't get counted in the census, then when those lines are drawn, they can simply ignore their existence. That happened in Georgia. It's happened across the country. And so what we want to do through Fair Count is ensure that we have an accurate count, particularly of hard-to-count communities. It is about your power, and it is about your money. And those are two things that, unfortunately, on the Democratic side, we tend to ignore until Election Day or until Census Day. But the Republicans actually had deep research done on how they could rig the census. Thomas Hofeller, his analysis and research was used to create the citizenship question that almost passed muster, except that his daughter found the information and got it to common cause. And we were able to use it through the coalition of groups that were fighting the citizenship question. We got that information to the Supreme Court. But what they were doing then, they will continue to try to do, which is erase communities of color from the narrative of America. They know that this is the fastest growing demographic, and they know they cannot win elections if actual political power is allocated appropriately in our country. 
All right. And finally, Leader Abrams, we wanted to talk about the the current presidential race for a moment. And while the race for the Democratic presidential nomination is hotly contested between progressives and moderates, one thing that everyone seems to be talking about and even agreeing on is that Stacey Abrams should be a vice presidential nominee. And while most politicians in positions like that adopt a faux humility, You've made it clear that you are interested in the job. So why did you decide to forego the usual pretense in the so-called veep stakes? Well, I, I think this is two things. One is that it does a disservice to women, to women of color, to people of color, to kids with aspirations, to see someone who is not normally included in a conversation essentially say, oh, don't look at me. Because in that moment, what I'm saying is I'm not worthy of this. Faux humility isn't communicated as faux humility. It's communicated as disinterest or as inability. And my obligation, given the unique position I hold, is to absolutely declare my capacity for that job and my willingness to serve. But secondly, I believe I could be a good vice president. I have a strong background in management, in legislative experience. I have foreign policy experience. I've spent 25 years in self-study and travel. And I would be an exceptional partner. I'm good at getting folks engaged. I'm good at explaining things. And I think I cut across some of the differences that we often see between progressive and moderate wings of our party. I'm a progressive in the South, which means I've had to learn how to speak progressive, moderate, conservative. I am multilingual in the values of our party. But most of all, I am to my core a Democrat who believes that progress will only be made if we engage every voter, if we invest early, if we do the work of reaching young voters and voters of color, and do so without alienating or isolating ourselves from white voters. In 2018, I proved it could be done. I received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, including the highest share of white voters since Bill Clinton, but also tripling Latino, Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increasing youth participation by 139%, and increasing Black participation by 40%. I'm including myself in the conversation because I would be honored to serve. We've got, uh, I think, about a minute or a minute and a half left. Putting aside, um, you know, who the VP is, how frustrating is it with Elizabeth Warren getting out of the race that women don't seem to have made the progress that I think we all expected? I go back to 1984 with Jerry Ferraro, and I think there was an expectation that there'd be a woman president soon. How can we fix that? One of the reasons I think so highly of Elizabeth Warren is she didn't run despite being a woman, and she didn't run because she was a woman. She ran as a woman, meaning that she acknowledged her presence meant something, and it signaled something. But it was also a challenge, and she never shirked from that challenge, much like Hillary Clinton. Women have to continue to fight because there is an intentionality of us not succeeding. That's one of the reasons I, I reject so humility. I think we're often taught that it's humility, but what we're being asked to do is self-effacement. And when you are self-effacing, you erase yourself from the narrative and you give others permission not to see you. I think that what she signaled, what Kamala Harris signaled, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, Tulsi Gabbard, every woman who ran, what they signaled is the responsibility we have as a, as a nation to fully embrace who we are. And that is a nation that's more than half women, and we deserve to be in charge. 
Well, Leader Abrams, we look forward to watching your continued participation in this discussion uh, in the coming weeks and months, and we are grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Katie and Joe, thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Great. Thank you. All right, Joe, I know you're busy and don't have time to read or in some cases reread all the books you'd like. And you just discovered an incredible new app, and it's called Blinkist? Yeah, Katie. Blinkist is quickly becoming one of the most important apps on my phone. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes need-to-know information, the key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. If you read a lot, but still don't get to have time to get to everything you want, Blinkist is made for you. You'll get the key points of a book in just minutes. So with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or on your lunch break or while you're exercising. And 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. And it has a massive and growing library from politics to current events to history books and even topics like business and health. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to or were supposed to read in high school. I know you just started using it, Joe, but you've had a great experience so far, it sounds like. Yeah, I was writing a column for CNN, and I was talking about a book I had read several years ago, and I frankly didn't have time to reread it. So I just went to Blinkist and in 15 minutes had all the key takeaways. So from Michelle Obama's Becoming to Russian Roulette by Michael Isakoff and David Korn to Rick Wilson's Everything Trump Touches Dies, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash words matter. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash words matter to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also get 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash words matter. All right, Joe. So you had a a Southern candidate for the presidency, but this is a a whole different bale of hay, as we may say in the South. I thought her her point was interesting that she made about being a political progressive in the South. She had to learn to speak progressive, but also moderate and also conservative to get anywhere in Georgia politics, which as a participant in Georgia politics, anyone on both sides have to kind of target those audiences. But what did you make of, of what she had to say? We have great people on here every week, but Stacey Abrams was, if not the most impressive person, we've had one of the most. I think she captures the issues with a very sophisticated understanding, but with a motivating narrative. And I think that she is going to get a very, very long look if Joe Biden's nominated. I have less insight into what Bernie Sanders will be looking for. And I think the real field for Biden will be fairly small. I think it will be a woman, and I think it will be a woman of color. And one of the things about Stacey Abrams is America hasn't seen that much of her. But I think if you listen to this, you you know that 
the more they see, the more they're going to like her. And speaking of Bernie and Biden, a lot has happened since we last spoke. The field is now narrowed down to two going into Michigan. Any predictions there? From South Carolina to Super Tuesday, more happened in a short time than I've ever seen in a presidential. I wanted to ask you that because it seemed very quick to me, but my institutional knowledge is shorter. No, I mean, we we were talking about a candidate who had at best come in third place in previous contests, winning across the board by more than he was supposed to win, uh, and candidates getting out knowing Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar got out the day before Super Tuesday. They didn't even go to the polls to get more data. So the media tends to make everything seem extraordinary, like everything is breaking news. But this was extraordinary. I think this week's primaries are very important, particularly Michigan. Sanders signaled his intentions by canceling a Friday rally in Mississippi conceding the South to Joe Biden. Michigan is a state he won last time by a very narrow margin over Hillary Clinton. He has to win Michigan. He has to make the case that outside the South, his wing of the party is strong enough to take him to Milwaukee and the nomination. If he loses in Michigan, it's very hard for people to believe that narrative. And one of the things I think we can take away from the earthquake of South Carolina to Super Tuesday is Democrats are looking for getting on with it. They want someone that will beat Trump. I believe that if Sanders loses Michigan, Democrats will write him off. Um, I mean, he'll get his 25, 30 percent of hardcore supporters. But I think Democrats are itching for this to turn to Trump and away from interparty squabbling. So I think Wednesday morning, we're going to have a much better sense of where this race is. And while all of this is going on, we are dealing with a national and potentially global crisis dealing with coronavirus, putting aside the fact that both Bernie and Biden are well into their 70s and hitting a campaign trail, shaking hands and kissing babies and visiting multiple populations a day that have potentially been affected by this. At the same time, the White House is trying to uh, tamp down fears, say things like, we've got it handled, we've kept it limited, the mortality rates are extremely low, maybe even lower than what's being reported. But there's so much left that's unknown, and we're starting to get inklings of that and reports of that based on the testing and the test kits that are available. But what do you make of how this is getting handled? Well, I think there's there's a couple levels to this. One is, I think we talked a little bit last week about how the president has failed the leadership test. His job is to make sure that those with the information deliver reliable, accurate information to the public so that they can make reasonable judgments. What you don't want is sort of mixed messages and and chaotic messages. But it's clear the president has put his reelection and his political fortunes ahead of the public health. He has done everything he, he could to downplay this. On Thursday of last week, uh, he told Fox News that he'd beaten it and it was over. We know it's not over. We know they haven't beaten it. And from a communications point of view, it's disastrous to you know say you've solved a problem and the problem is apparent to anyone who turns on a television or opens a newspaper. And I think the most the, – the worst and most damaging thing of that is when 
the scientists who work for the government go out and say in a straightforward way, we, we don't have this contained. We are worried about this. We don't have the test kits available to test people. And then the president and you know his economic advisor and his pollster go and tell the press that, yes, we do have it contained. So if you are an average American, you think I, – I, I would imagine a lot of people jump to the conclusion of, well, if, if the president says it's contained and the scientists say it's not, well, boy, this must be really bad. And even the scientists are being, are being held on a short leash. And that's created not widespread panic, but a lot of people doing a lot of things that they probably don't need to do at this point. Finally, the most where you can actually see it on a day-to-day basis are the, the financial markets on the stock market. The president has made a huge deal about how much everyone has gained uh, on the stock market. That's been wiped out. And it's been wiped out for two reasons. One is the, the, the virus is having a direct impact on the economy. And stock market is never looking at what's happening today or what happened yesterday. It's always looking ahead. And it's always looking to what they predict will happen. And so the fundamentals uh, are changing. Despite what Larry Kudlow says every day, they are changing. All you have to do is go to a mall, go to, go to an airport, and see how easy it is to get through the TSA line. People have changed their habits, their travel habits, their going out to large events, and that will have an impact on the economy. But the second thing, which is within the control of the administration, is the market's can handle and can price in the change in economic fundamentals. What really causes volatility is when there's uncertainty and they can't figure out where the floor is. And this is where uh, the particularly the president, but also some of his aides have spooked the markets. They see the president saying everything's okay and then the scientists saying everything's not and they're like, we don't know. And when they don't know, their instinct is to sell rather than to buy. And that has a psychological effect on people, but it also will have a direct impact on the president's reelection uh, prospects. We know we, when we talked to Doug Sosnick um, a couple of weeks ago when he, when he was our guest, he talked about the by the end of the second quarter, people's minds were baked on whether the president was good for the economy or bad for them for the economy. And so we're coming up to, to July 1st, the end of the second quarter is not that far away. And now we have uh, incredible economic uncertainty. And it's fair to say that uh, Donald Trump is an unpopular president, but his core supporters at about 40% will always stay with him. That theory will be tested if we go into a recession, if the stock market tumbles even further, if this vicious cycle turns on itself and starts really impacting businesses around the country. And without that, it's very hard to see uh, Trump being reelected. So the bottom line is there is a reason uh, Trump is using bad information and misdirection because it's in his interest. It's a very, very risky strategy. It's George Bush and mission accomplished. He told the country we had this done and it's not done. And it's an issue, a lot of political back and forth. The public doesn't care about. They don't pay attention to it. Doesn't move them one way or the other. It just moves sort of the Twitterverse. You can't have a conversation any place in this country with anyone, whether they're a stranger or a friend or a family, that doesn't start with coronavirus. You just can't. That moves voters. 
You know, it's the old adage of Chicago that Mayor Jane Byrne lost the mayor election because it snowed and she couldn't get the snow off the street fast enough. And she went from being ahead in the in the Democratic primary to losing. This is something that impacts everyone. Everyone's thinking about, everyone's talking about, there's real anxiety. And the leadership that they should be getting from the White House, they're not. It's not going away. I suspect we'll be talking about this next week and the week after that and the week after that. Yeah, I would count myself in, included with those people who every conversation they have revolves around, at least in the beginning, coronavirus. And so much changes each day that by the next time we talk, I'm sure it'll be an entirely different storyline. But uh, thanks to our listeners for joining us this week. Until then. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.